Hey, what is up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And I'm here once again with my friend Martin. What's up, dude? Yola. Yo. So we are uh, just heading right into part two of our Path to College series. And uh, part one, if you didn't listen to it yet, was about getting into college. If you happen to be one of, I would assume, the majority of our listeners who are in college, maybe that episode wasn't for you, but we wanted to get it in place as like one piece of the puzzle there. Um, And this episode is going to be on paying for college. Now, if you're already in college, I think this episode will be a little bit more applicable to you than the last one was. It's definitely going to be applicable to anybody who is not in college yet and who's planning on going. But uh, we're going to get into some details on scholarships, loans, grants, payback options for loans, and making college cheaper in the first place. So I think this is a bit more of a useful and a universal sense episode, would you say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It will apply a little bit more to the people who are already in college. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the off chance, you've already figured out all the payment information and stuff that you want to deal with. Well, then part three is going to be completely universally applicable. So I'm pretty excited for part three. Yeah, that one will work for like 80 year olds. That's just a useful. <laughs> <laughs> universal. If you're 80 years old and you don't know how to be an adult yet. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, mean, I mean, you've got you probably should have figured it out by now. It's true. But yeah. Still. Actually, you know what? Maybe when I become 80, I'm going to realize like I didn't know how to be an adult all along. It's very possible. Probably. In five (laughs) years, we're going to think that we were really dumb now. That's true. That's like the, that's the universal thing that everyone goes through. Like, oh man, I really wish I could stay this age forever. But five years ago, I was, I was an idiot. Yeah. (laughs) And then five years from now, you'll say the same thing. Yeah. I wonder, will I think I'm an idiot? Or will I think 24 year old me was an idiot when I'm 29? I don't know. That's the question. I don't know. I already think I'm an idiot. I hope not. There you go. But then again, like 19-year-old me, I think I was an idiot in some ways. Anywho, so quick breakdown of what we're going to go through in this episode, because we have quite the epic outline to get through here. This is mainly my fault. (laughs) As usual. Sorry, I put you through this, Martin. So we're going to go through what I like to call the dream school mindset here, and I totally just made that term up, but we're going to talk a little bit about your choice of school and how you should balance that with the financial realities of your ability to pay now versus take loans. Um, We're going to get a little bit into how to make college cheaper, many different ways to do that. Uh, Payment options, we're going to go a little bit into the FAFSA. So if you need some uh, a reminder on all the dates and all that kind of stuff, the FAFSA's details are going to be in this episode. We've got scholarship stuff, grants, loans, uh, and we have a little bit on paying back loans. And there's going to be a little bit on jobs and saving money. So we're trying to take a crack at uh, kind of a definitive look at the whole college payment process. Though, like we said in the last episode, it applies here. This is a uh, podcast episode. So (laughs) we can't get like an entire book's worth of information in here, which is why if you want more episode, uh, more detail, not more episode, more detail on the whole paying for college thing. One of my favorite books for students, and if you're a parent listening to this too, like this is a book you should read, is called Debt Free You by a guy named Zach Bissonette. And it's just, it's such a good book. It just shows like how so many expensive colleges kind of like overinflate their worth. Not all of them, but some of them. It shows like how to pay for college without taking down, taking on a whole lot of debt. It shows exactly what that debt is going to do to people after they graduate. And I think it's just kind of an essential read for anybody who is thinking about plunking down a huge chunk of change 
foreign education. So whether or not you like this episode, like definitely give that a read. I love that book. And it's on the essential books for students list. So uh, yeah, I could sing the praises of it all day, but we're going to head on to the episode. And if you want to find all of the links, including links to that book and links to some articles on College Info Geek that have already been written and lots of resources like the FAFSA resources and all that jazz, they are over at the show notes. Uh, you can find those at CIGpodcast.com. Check out the episode 110 link on that page to get all those links and stuff. So we talk about sunk costs a lot. Oh, we do. <laughs> it's one like, of the favorite things I learned from college of business. That's that's true. Yeah. That's one of the like top three things I pulled from college. So sunk costs. Sunk costs. Let's talk about them. Yeah. So a sunk cost, I'll let, I'll let you describe what a sunk cost is. Because right, uh, so I think it's very essential to this whole dream school mindset thing. That, it, it is indeed. So a sunk cost by itself is just a cost that you've already incurred. You've already paid for it in some way that you cannot recover. So if I buy something and I can't return it or sell it or do anything, what I paid for it is a sunk cost. Now, the sunk cost fallacy is when you take those sunk costs into account making a future decision. So mm. if I'm like, well, I paid a bunch of money for it, but I don't want it anymore, but I can't get my money back. So maybe I try to keep my things because, well, I paid money for it. I should probably keep it. Yeah. But what I paid in the past doesn't mean anything now. The, the, the cost is sunk. It's gone. Don't consider it. It's not yeah. part of the decision making for the future. I can't really get the money back. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times like people follow the decision that the sunk cost fallacy encourages them to make to their own peril or to like greater loss than they would incur otherwise. I remember some story I read about uh, some some kid's uncle had like a construction company and they were contracted to build this house uh, at this this you know piece of property. And they did all this work to kind of dig up the foundation, dig up where the basement was going to be. He sunk thousands of dollars into it. And then it turned out that like just the foundation was really bad and they hadn't done proper surveying work. And essentially it was like, I've already invested thousands and thousands of dollars in this. So the guy tried to still build the house, which did not work. Bad, (laughs) bad decision. Ended up wasting more money. Yeah. And honestly, I, I fall victim to this too. Like I know about the sunk cost fallacy, but knowing about a fallacy does not oh, mean it doesn't you make will you avoid it. Like that stupid lawnmower that I bought in the garage that doesn't really work. Um, yeah, I like still can't, sometimes can't. I'm like, man, I should just use that. Oh, I honestly, money for I it. had the urge to use it like a couple of weeks ago. I was like, maybe I should just go out there and just, yeah. just mow the lawn. It doesn't, doesn't work very well. The lawn's too tall, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know. It, it seems like what a waste sitting there in the garage. If you guys didn't know, I thought that I would be old fashioned and environmentally conscious and all those things. And I bought one of those. Oh, what do you call them? It's like you a push rotary it, mower or something. Yeah, it's the you one push that doesn't it and have, the blades spin around. Yeah, it like, doesn't run on gas or anything. It's got a, like a wheel of blades. It's like the it's one cool. you see uh, Leave It to Beaver using if you happen to watch TV It's really Land. cool looking though. I mean, it's cool. In that nice like old fashioned kind of thing if you're into it's it. It's very old fashioned. It technically works, but... You have to mow your lawn like every four days because if the if the grass gets any longer than that, it doesn't do a good job. And then our yard has like this stupid ditch in it, and it's basically impossible to mow. Oh yeah, that well thing. we we did not take that into account. The ditch doesn't work. But because I bought it, like I was so hesitant to hire someone to come mow the lawn because I was like, I already spent a hundred bucks on this, and in reality, like a hundred bucks is three mowings worth if you're paying someone. Oh yeah. But I, I've waited so long to the point where like we got 
a email from the landlord being like, when are you going to mow your lawn? And it was partly because I hadn't gotten, you know, someone hadn't gotten back to me, but I was also like waiting on calling a new person because it's on cost. I was like, man, maybe I should just use that mower. So how this kind of factors into the choice of college is there's a, I don't know how common it is, but there's a situation where a student has a dream school they want to go to and they tour it. They, you know, go through a lot of the process of applying. Um, they pay an application fee, which kind of gets them invested even more. They get accepted. They're all excited. And then the financial aid offer comes, right? Because your your uh, application goes in before December of your, of your senior year, but you can't put your FAFSA in until after January 1st because taxes have to come in. And then you might not get your full financial aid offer until after you graduate. And you can get to the point where you've been accepted to this college, but now it's so expensive and the financial aid offer is not what you are hoping for. But you're already invested, right? You have accepted the offer. You've already paid the application fee. You've already mentally committed to this college. And colleges are incredibly good at putting their their best foot forward when they're marketing to you. You do the tours. They have all the awesome buildings on campus. They're like, hey, this president and this you know CEO of GE or whatever went to this school. Uh, they've like hyped it up so much. And I think that's part of the reason that students will convince themselves to overreach with loans, like private loans or taking on like the maximum government loans. This is why parents will um, justify to themselves taking on like parental plus loans, that kind of stuff, because they're like, oh, well, we've already invested so much into this college. And just because we didn't get the financial aid we wanted doesn't mean that we should abandon it. And that's what I like to call it the dream school mindset. It's just this adherence to the sunk cost fallacy. And I think part of what goes into this as well as a lot of people who do argue the merits of more prestigious colleges or a lot of things in life, not just college, tend to compare it to the worst possible alternative. Like Martin, have you ever heard somebody be like, oh, this product is so good versus not using any product at all in this space, like you'll have such a good return and they don't even compare it to like a competitor. I remember there was, there was someone on a, our financial podcast that I do with somebody matters. who was like, yeah, this strategy that I'm touting, you're going to make 200% return over never investing. And like the dude didn't even mention other investing methods. It was oh, just like, yeah. use he's, mine or he's don't not use like, anything at all. He's not comparing himself to give like a fair a fair yeah. shot to other methods that would be similar. Yeah, just like, exactly. Like, just like your dream school is not going to be like, hey, listen, listen, we're not going to give you all the financial aid you needed, but don't look at the other guys. They're, yeah. Yeah, they're, exactly. They're never going to just say, well, this school would, that might be cheaper. Maybe you should go there. They don't want that. They want your money. Why would they tell you to go somewhere else? Yeah, exactly. So this all kind of boils down to my kind of rule and I mean, you don't have to follow my rules, but this is kind of what I believe for choosing a college. I believe that you should shoot for your dream college. You should give it your all, apply to the one you want to go to, no matter how expensive it is, if it's, you know, if it's not like a scammy for-profit thing. And if you get in and if they offer you like a huge financial aid package, so you have to take out no or very minimal loans. Awesome. So excited for you. Please go to that college. But this is why in the last episode we talked about the importance of having a list of reach schools and likely schools and safety schools and why we're talking about now 
why you should be able to overcome the sunk cost fallacy because if you apply and you get accepted and it turns out that you're going to have to take out like 80 grand or 100 grand in loans, then you really have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Am I really going to be able to pay off these loans when I graduate? Um, there's research, which the author cites in Debt For You, about how I believe it was like anything over 11% of a person's gross take-home pay going to loans each month will constitute like very extreme stress. Uh, and this was there like, were like people mental surveyed. stress or yeah, some sort of financial stress. It was it was mental stress. Okay. Like they basically surveyed people's mental state and like how they felt about their money. And people who had less than 7%, I believe, of their um, gross take-home pay going to loans felt that it was manageable, that it was fine, that they weren't in any way hampered by it. And people, I think it was like over 11. So not a huge margin of difference there. But once you kind of get over that 10 or 11% point, or percent point, now it's starting to feel like a lot of your money is going to debt every month. And when you have a huge amount, it's just a tough situation to be in. So... That's why I think it's a really good idea to just to think to yourself, like, do I need to go to the super expensive school? And we talked about last time that study that was done where it was like uh, kids who get accepted to the the really high end colleges might not even need to go there where um, they compared the kids who got accepted to Yale, but actually went to Rutgers. They ended up earning just as much over a course of 20 years as the people who actually did go to Yale. Um, and I can say myself, like I'm running a pretty successful business. I went to a state college. There's a lot of really famous people, uh, really rich and successful people who went to state colleges and some who even went to community colleges and some who didn't go to college at all. So don't let colleges sell you on this idea that they are the only place where you can fulfill your ultimate potential. They are one place to do it and there are other places that might be just as good for less money. So yeah, I'm, I'm an advocate of not paying too much for school, especially if you're not going for something that's going to provide a definite return like martin you were going to major in what french right yeah i here? actually i applied so to iowa plan? state as a french major so did you have a plan for like getting a return from that or were you just kind of going in to like learn french because you were passionate about french i was either going to fall back on my associate's degree to pay for stuff or i was going to be a translator if i could make it happen okay so you did have a job in mind yeah and i had a fallback that would be pretty decent gotcha. you know because i already had a, a foot into the tech industry okay yeah and that's but, so that's definitely something you could you know use but to i mean I, I switched before i even first day of classes i had already switched i was doing mis because i decided well i could just learn french mm -hmm. while getting a different degree that will pay more yeah problem solved it's the whole like you paid eighty thousand dollars yes like <laughs> wait a second to get the education you could have gotten for a buck fifty and library late fees yeah like i could just learn french not have french on the piece of paper but mm -hmm. still like learn it it'll be okay yeah i mean obviously this is a more nuanced issue than we can probably go into here um and i'd love to hear your thoughts if you have them in the comments for this episode but this is this is something that i'm really passionate about and it's something i really want every student and their family to think about um and i'd encourage you to sit down and we're going to talk about loans in a second or probably a little bit later in the episode sit down and actually calculate like how much per month is uh, my payment going to be based on the amount of loans I'm planning on taking? And not just on the loans from freshman year, but like extrapolate that. Am I going to have to take out loans, you know, sophomore, junior, senior year? Or am I going to have jobs that I can pay for it with? Uh, that kind of thing. And uh, sit down and, and like actually look at average starting salaries 
and average cost of living for where you might want to live. And keep in mind, this is very hard to plan for. You may go to a very prestigious university with plans to go to law school and become a high paid lawyer. And then in the middle of it, decide to become a service worker instead. And uh Oh, what happens then? <laughs> you know, well, you've certainly got a bit of a sunk cost there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty big sunk cost, but whatever you do, just sit down and do the math and figure out how much is this really going to cost me? And if I'm taking loans, how much is it going to cost me per month? It's so easy to think, I'm taking 50K in loans, I'm taking 60K in loans, and I'll be making plenty of money when I'm older. Oh, It'll yeah, be that, so easy probably to take work care out. of. Yeah. And I got to say, like, most people I know who just took the federal loans, even if they have, like, 30K in debt, which it's close to what you have, right? I'm... Uh, or low, are you tripping low, away at it? I'm at low 20s. Low 20s now, okay. Yeah, I mean, I came out with about 15K, you're low 20s. The payment is manageable. So most people I know are like that. When they took just government debt, it's manageable for the most part. There are some cases where it's not, but um, like we'll talk about in a little while, there are some payment plans that can ease that up, even though you'll end up paying more in interest over the long run. But it gets a little bit hairier when you start taking on lots and lots of private loans. Yeah, they're so, a little less forgiving. Yeah, and I'm I'm not a big fan of private loans myself. So I don't know. We can, we can hash that out in a little bit. Um, so the next thing I want to get into here with all that philosophizing done, is that a word? Philo- uh, it, philosophizing? it is now. Even if it's not, just use it enough times. <laughs> it'll be a word. That's how it works. That is how it works. I made up, uh, I think I talked about when, when an episode with Simon, I made up a word for when you like want something, but you don't really want it. And it's flaunt, like a fake want. Oh yeah. Like I flaunt a motorcycle, but not, but you like don't want. really, you don't I don't really want to keep one, one in a garage and maintain it. Just, it. it sounds kind of cool. Yeah. But eh. I guess what I would want is someone to show up, be like, Hey, ride this motorcycle and then I will take it away. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, no form. strings. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about how to make college cheaper. And, uh, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was consider community college which is exactly what you did, right? It is indeed what I did. Yeah. And what what did you pay for community college? Uh, Well, after the grants and scholarships and such that I had got, not a couple a couple thousand maybe. I came out of there debt-free with an associate's A couple degree. thousand just for the whole two-year period? Out of, out of pocket. Out of, the rest was grants. Like everything else was covered. Oh, sweet. Okay. I came out debt-free with an associate's degree, and I could have gotten a job with that. Yeah. If, if I wanted to, I went to Iowa state for different reasons, but had I just wanted to stop there, have no debt and start working would have worked. I had friends who did it. Yeah. And we probably would have ended up making close to what most people make with a four year degree. I read this article on CNN money a while ago that said about 30% of people in America who graduate with an associate's degree actually make more than the average bachelor degree salary. Now why more? I'm wondering. I'm wondering if it's because the average bachelor degree salary is brought down by people who major in like the liberal arts and oh, whereas people getting stuff, associate's degree, it's hands it's on. It's usually more technical. It's usually there. more like this is a job I want, you know, and it's okay. That could, that could make, that's sense. my guess. But I do remember the article kind of highlighting that a highly motivated student can still become quite successful in community college. And when I was in high school, the community college in my town which I went to for half the day during my final year 
had a lot of clubs. They had a lot of opportunities. Um, I wouldn't say that it was as big and as many opportunities as Iowa State had because Iowa State has 30,000 students. But there were a lot of different opportunities. And I remember I was actually sitting in the office with the guidance counselor there for some reason at one point. Oh, I know why. It's because uh, I decided to apply for the Community College's Honor Society. Even though I was in high school, I was like, hey, I'm taking dual credit classes. Did, that did makes that, me. Can you do that? It worked. Yes, it did. <laughs> huh. And I have a story to tell you about that. That's weird. This was going to be the intro to my blog post on like the, on the How to Not Be Late video. Um, I cut it out just to keep the blog post length down, but there was like an initiation ceremony where we had to stand on stage and we were going to get like the whatever certificate or whatever it was to show we were in the honor society. And I forgot about the event until the day of. And the only reason I remembered it is because for some reason my phone had an alarm for it, but it didn't go off until 15 minutes before the event. Oh, that's good. So I go, oh, crap. That is happening tonight. Jump in my car, get there, and eventually uh, I'm standing on stage with all these people in like business formal. Oh no, they're all in suits. What are you wearing? And I'm in camo cargo shorts. Camo cargo shorts and a Hurley t-shirt. That is possibly the worst thing. Like you, I guess a onesie may have been a little less professional, but at least at least that would have seemed intentionally mocking. This was just an accident. I kind of wish I would have been standing there and thinking winky. Yeah, see, that would they would have been like, I see what he's doing there. That's on purpose, right? <laughs> but this but was no. just this was just an accident. Oh, look at this! Did they like exemplary it? student? How did they feel? Honors society member showing up here all sweaty, <laughs> ran into the building in cargo shorts. Wow. Yeah, I really wish there was a picture of that somewhere. I would post it. It'd be fun. It's funny now. But uh, I was pretty embarrassed. You know, being like the the (laughs) high schooler in the college honors thing, they were probably expecting, well, this kid's really like professional. He's really got his stuff together, (laughs) except (laughs) for apparently not at all. Instead, they're just like, there's the high schooler. Yeah, I expected better than this, actually. He's just. I knew we shouldn't have let this kid in. Yeah. (laughs) Let's write up some new rules. Let's let's keep that from happening. I was in I was in one of the counselor's offices at the college because I had gotten inducted into that group and uh she I think she was just kind of trying to like let me know like these are the options for things if you decide to go to community college first before transferring that's what a lot of students do it's actually a great option um and I was actually kind of impressed and I remember she told me a lot of students at community college show up for class and then they go home for many of them it's kind of like and I have to do this thing because they're non-traditional students. They might have a full-time job. They might have a family with kids. So there's not as many opportunities or as not as not as much time to be going to clubs and, and doing extra stuff. But if you're not, or even if you are non-traditional, but if, you, if you're just a student at a high school, you can make use of a lot of the opportunities at a community college. And it's just another one of those examples of the merits of looking into the opportunities of the cheaper school option rather than looking only at the best possible school and then assuming anything else is going to be like not living up to your potential. It's going to be the most (laughs) terrible thing ever. That sounds just like any time, like I try to buy something on Amazon, you know, if I'm going to buy buy like a tea (laughs) kettle or a rice cooker, this better be the number one on earth. If the number two has like one person complaining about it, I don't know if it's good enough. Amazon reviews. I started Amazon like a $30 thing and all of a sudden, I'm like looking at a $200 thing. It's yeah, just you like, just like upsell yourself. Well, 
this one is just better in every way. I've read all the reviews. I, I should obviously get that. And then, and then I have to remember, like, I would have gone to Walmart and I would have just bought the thing for 30 bucks. You probably would have been satisfied. I would have never cared. <laughs> if you didn't know that you didn't have the best thing, you probably would have thought that what you had was pretty good. It's true. But yeah, so community college is an option and you can transfer. And if maybe your grades weren't amazing in high school, maybe that's part of the reason your financial aid package isn't as chock full of scholarships as it could be. You can go to community college for a couple of years and then a lot of colleges won't even want to see your high school transcripts because now you're a transfer student. Now you're eligible for transfer scholarships. And if you do really well in community college, you can get a lot of financial aid, which is exactly what you did. Right, Martin? Yeah. Yeah. Like completely turned everything around because in high school, I didn't really get my act together till the last year. So my GPA wasn't great. My class ranking wasn't great. But in uh, at Iowa Western, when I went to community college, I was basically being responsible. So I got near a 4.0 and Iowa State never cared about my high school GPA. I got scholarships. I got transfer scholarships. They thought my GPA was great. Yeah. It started on a completely different, like a, a much better foot. Did you, where did you live when you were at community college? I lived with, uh, for part of the time, I just lived with my mom still. And another okay. time I lived with a friend who lived closer so you, that I could like bike like to splitting the college. Rent then at that point? Uh, honestly, no, I had a bit of an advantage still. Okay. Cost wise. Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing I wanted to mention though. If there's a university near you, I was legitimately thinking about living at home during my first year. This was before I got my scholarship that I knew I was basically able to go to college. Oh yeah, you were an anchor. But when I was in when I was in high school, when I was first applying to Iowa State, my parents told me we can't help pay for your college. And I had part-time jobs, but I was like, I can't pay for dorms and tuition and all this stuff. So it's either take a lot of loans or I could just be a commuter student. Didn't end up happening, but that's definitely an option and I was willing to do it. It's something that back when I was in high school and even now I would have pushed back on and I, I'm not going to like put a huge recommendation on this because I do think there is value in getting out there and being independent and having to figure things out for yourself. But it's definitely an option if you need to lower the cost, like a huge option. Um, and speaking of cutting the cost of college, I wrote an article that is it was like 39 ways to cut the cost of college. And I'll have that in the show notes. There's lots of other things in there. One of them I really wanted to mention here, and that is that you can actually pay for your tuition and dorms monthly at a lot of schools. They don't advertise this very well. It's usually just kind of de facto assumed that, oh, you pay for tuition up front, you pay for the dorm up front, and if you can't pay for it out of pocket, you get a loan. But I looked this up, Iowa State, and I think I also looked it up for University of Iowa. They both have monthly payment plans. And a lot of schools have these. You just have to ask the financial aid office if you can do it. Um, so if you're the kind of family that you can't pay for uh, $4,000 or $5,000 per semester tuition all up front, but hey, maybe 1000 bucks a month would actually be doable, that would save you a lot of interest over the long run by taking out student loans. And the, the only catch here is I think there's like a $50 fee at Iowa State to set it up. Like a, like a one-time? Yep, just a one-time one fee. fee that's like... All yeah. Right. And they do require there to be a direct withdrawal from your bank for it. So you can't just go and like they won't just let you. Oh, yeah. They don't want to waste check. time waiting for you to. <laughs> they're not going to just let you turn in late stuff. It's a yeah, exactly. serious business here. But it's a it's a thing you can do. And it's also something you can do with the dorms. I learned that during my junior year when I was fortunately having my dorm paid for by being an RA which is another way to make college cheaper. Actually, being an RA makes it pretty cheap because you get paid and get free room board. 
But uh, I learned about that and I was like, hey, I was working 20 hours a week. I might have been able to pay for my dorm myself monthly instead of taking loans. And we can debate like the relative merits of if, you know, if I had paid for my dorm every month, I wouldn't have had money to buy the computer that I built CIG on or something. I don't know. There's all sorts of butterfly effect stuff we can get into there. But fact remains, you can pay monthly for a lot of things. And if that's more affordable, it might be worth not going for the loans. That brings us to the FAFSA. This stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid. I don't know why. I've heard so many student administrators and people who work at colleges call it the FAFSA. Oh, yep. But no. I've, I've heard that too. It's the FAFSA. Yep. <laughs> and this is basically a big application that determines what your family's expected family contribution is. Uh, they call it EFC. And that, in turn determines what kind of aid you're eligible for. Now, this is determining basically just grants, which are kind of like scholarships, but they're more based on need and less based on merit. So a scholarship is usually going to be like write an essay or have amazing grades or something like that. And a grant's going to be like, oh, your family makes under this threshold or, or something. And then there's the federal loans and there's two categories which are subsidized and unsubsidized. A subsidized just basically means your loan does not accrue interest while you are in school. And I believe it doesn't accrue interest until maybe six months after graduation, which is really nice. Uh, and then unsubsidized loans are just like any other regular loan. They will be accruing interest all the time while you're in school. The FAFSA can be filled out anytime after January 1st. But in my experience, nobody has their tax returns ready by January 1st. Yeah, how many businesses have even Doesn't given happen. out the like W-2s? for your parents to no. file their taxes by that point. Yeah. That's, it's probably not going to happen. I think there was one year where I was able to get my taxes done by like January 10th, but that was a total Crazy. anomaly. Yeah. That is the fact I've never been able to do it that soon. It was, I think Iowa state was just really on the ball that year and they got me my, my student uh, W2 for my part-time job and I had really nothing else. So I was just like, sweet, get my taxes done uh, right on TurboTax and peace of mind for the rest of the year. But this year, I was waiting for all kinds of stuff, and I got my taxes done probably near the end of February, which is when my parents got theirs done. And that was freaking me out because in uh, during my senior year, I had read that for Iowa State, you need to have your FAFSA in by March 1st to be eligible for like all the aid they had. This is important because uh, June 30th is the real deadline for the FAFSA. So for the 2016-2017 year, for example, June 30th, 2016 would be when you need to turn it in. But most colleges have like a priority deadline and you really want to make sure you get your FAFSA in before that. So my bottom line tip here is just to do it as soon as you possibly can after January 1st. And the one thing you can do actually is you can submit a version of your FAFSA that has estimated data on it. Um, basically if your parents have been really slow in getting their taxes done, or there's some piece of information you can't get by March 1st or whenever your university's deadline is, then you can use estimated data and the estimates can come from either last year's income. If you think that this year is going to be similar, or you can, um, use their income estimator tool, which I'll have linked up in the show notes. That way you get it in and then you can just submit a correction later which is exactly what I did. I think the income I put for my parents was pretty close. So I was pretty satisfied knowing that I was going to get the maximum aid offer. Uh, the cool thing is 
you don't have to take the aid that they offer you. I do remember a couple of years they offered me a bunch of loans and I just declined them, which is nice. But I think a lot of students believe that whatever aid they offer, you just accept by default and you don't actually have to. So keep that in mind. So that was my FAFSA experience. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, I usually, I had my stuff done on time. I got definitely, definitely get before the priority deadline though. Mm -hmm. With the ability to give an estimate FAFSA, you really don't have an excuse not to, and you're really disqualifying yourself for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars yeah, it's in true. potential scholarships that they're just going to ignore you for if you take too long. Yeah. That's, that's really the biggest thing I think for FAFSA is just get it done before then. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I wanted to go over what you need before we kind of wrap this up. Uh, so you need your social security number or your alien registration number. And I guess I forgot to mention this. <laughs> this episode is very America centric because that's where we are. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know how colleges work in Germany or India or anywhere. Yeah, I kind of assume that in Germany you just go for free. That's what I've heard is it's free. So that's nice, but not for us. <laughs> So, yeah, this is very America-centric, and sorry to anybody who's not living in America. Um, next week's episode is going to be world-centric, so pretty excited for that. So you need your SOCH or your alien registration number. You need an income tax return and your W-2s, and you also need records of your current financial holdings and your parents' current financial holdings. And I remember I was just like, Mom, how much do you guys have in the bank? And they were like, why do you want to know that? So you have to have that conversation with your parents. Uh, and you also need an FSA ID, which is basically the ID you use to electronically sign the FAFSA if you do it online, which you should, because I have gone through the paper FAFSA and it is the most complicated, ridiculous document. It's worse than doing your taxes. Really? <laughs> yeah, because... I've never looked at the paper one, so... Doing your taxes on know. paper isn't too bad when it's like a 1040 EZ. You just kind of fill it out. But doing the FAFSA, it's like oh, if you are an independent student, go over to section whatever B, or if you're a dependent student, your own adventure? you have to go over to section C, and then there's like this gigantic flow chart to figure out if you're independent or dependent. I have a post on that, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, spoilers, you're almost certainly dependent. Even if you're independent on your taxes, you are almost guaranteed to be dependent on your FAFSA if you're like under the age of 24. There so are some other separate, separate indicators there. Yeah. Between yeah. taxes and your FAFSA. They're actually completely independent of each other. Like your taxes, your taxes independent status and your FAFSA independent status have absolutely no relation to each other whatsoever. That is a good thing to note. So you could be either or on both of them. Um I was actually I was confused about this and I was like, no, there must be some relation. So that's why I spent an entire afternoon a couple of years ago going line by line through the paper FAFSA document to try to make sure it never said uh, your taxes affect this and they don't. So, because there's a lot of instances where you haven't lived with your parents, they have not provided more than half your income, so you're not a dependent on the taxes, but because you're not 24 years old and you don't hit all the other criteria, which are much less likely for you to hit, um, you're not going to be independent for the FAFSA. I do believe if you're married, you will be. So, if you're over 24 or you're married or you're any one of those very, very less likely things, then you might be. And basically, independent status will make you eligible for more loans. So if you need more loans, then I guess that would be good for you. But there's not really a way besides, I guess, getting married to somebody to become independent on the FAFSA. Uh, the area where this can get sticky is... 
I've, I've had students email me and they're like, I have to be a dependent on the FAFSA. I'm not independent, but my parents refuse to provide their information for my FAFSA. And I've read on like student aid sites, their tips for that are appeal to your parents' moral senses and explain to wow. them that your future depends on their... <laughs> wow, they really gave up on fixing that little... Yeah, so there there is like, technically a way through the crack situation. There is technically a way where your the the school's financial aid advisor can, um, I think they can issue some sort of exception where you're technically a dependent student, but you, you can get exception from them to not provide parental data. But I've read that it's really hard to get, and there are a lot of situations where the student is like not in contact with their parents, or their parents are just being total jerks, and they still don't get the exception. So. That's part of the system that needs to be fixed. And who I mean, it would be great if it's fixed since I read that, but I doubt it because this is the government and it hasn't been 50 years since I read that. It's been like yeah. one. So yeah, that's that's a tough uh, break for anybody in that situation. Luckily, it's going to be less, it's very uncommon, but it does happen. What you're going to get from the FAFSA is a student aid report, and this will tell you what your expected family contribution is. It'll also tell you what you're eligible for. In my experience, this was on my like Iowa State student dashboard on their website, um, and I was able to accept or decline the aid that I wanted from there. So that's probably where yours is going to be, though you may, you may get paper as well. So the most common types of aid, one is the Pell Grant, and that's the most common grant, which you got that, didn't you? Yep. Yeah. And so, uh, that was, I think it's up to $5,775 for families with a lower EFC. Sounds about right. Is that what you got? Every time. Now, is that once per year? I believe so. Okay. So that's not going to cover. I believe it's like you get half of it first semester. Then yeah. You get the next half of that 5775 So that's not going to cover semester. your entire tuition. But at Iowa State, our tuition was like 3900 a semester. So... It's covering it covers, a, it's a pretty good large chunk of it. Yeah. And then uh, your loan options are the Stafford loan, of which you can get a subsidized version or an unsubsidized version, which we talked about. And then there's also the federal Perkins loan. And I can post some links if you want to know the differences between them. And then the other one is work-study eligibility. And basically what this means is if you have work-study eligibility, money is going to go to your school, and then they will pay part of your wages if you get a job on campus. So essentially like, say you got a job at the campus tech support department like I did. If you are work study eligible, that means the campus tech support department doesn't have to pay you entirely out of their budget. The uh, work study money that the college got from the government is gonna help pay your hourly wage, but you still gotta work for it. So what that means for you is if you have that eligibility, some schools will actually assign a job for you or help you find one. And others, like Iowa State, just tell you, go find the job. And if it's on campus uh, and if they work with work study, then you will be able to earn that money. Um, I will say that if you do have eligibility for work study, you become more attractive to departments because they essentially have to pay you like $4 an hour or $3 an hour, whatever the split is, because you're still getting paid whatever the actual wages, but less of that money comes out of their department, which is nice. And I had work-study eligibility, which could have been part of why I was able to get my job at the tech support department. Um, and that was pretty nice. It was pretty nice to have pocket money during 
the semester for that. Did you have that as well? I, I know you worked on campus. I believe I was work study eligible, but at the time I didn't realize that they wouldn't like assign me a job. So oh, yeah. I ended up just getting a job anyway for a semester mm-hmm. and I'd never thought too much about it after that. I always just had a job for most of school and they were always paying out of pocket. Yeah. Uh, I probably could have, could have used that. I but, don't actually remember hey, them we were telling just, me. We were just talking about the whole like five years ago, I was an idiot, <laughs> you know? Well, I got to say, I don't, I don't remember them telling me about the work study thing. I remember See, it being I didn't really on know my, how it worked all the way. Yeah. It was like on my student aid report and that was kind of it. It didn't say, oh, go get a job or go talk to this person in this sub sub basement of the administration building. It was just like, yeah, you have work study do with that what you will. Um, and I just got a job because I had had part-time jobs ever since I was 15 years old. And that's all I knew. I didn't know the whole, what is this not working thing? Um, I wanted to have a steady paycheck, so I did it, (laughs) but yeah, check that out. If you have eligibility, you're going to be a more attractive candidate. Though, don't let that um, make your application lazy. So I want to talk about the next thing, and this is the this is probably the most exciting thing here, uh, and that's scholarships, because scholarships is money you don't have to pay back. Uh, yeah, I'm pumped. Yeah, I'm getting really pumped right now. So what scholarships did you get? Uh, I got the Roy J. Carver scholarship. That's the only one I remember by name off the top of my head right now. Well, I guess the names probably don't matter. Because people at different universities won't see, have I the got, same scholarships. Yeah, I got some from transfer. I got some transfer scholarships. Okay. The, the one I just mentioned covered my tuition for two years. Really? And that was based off of writing like a 500-word essay. So and that was a transfer one? That one, no, not a transfer one. That one I got for junior and senior year, the Roy J. Carver. Oh, that's right. Okay. But... That was based on an essay, so my best scholarship by far was based off of me having to write an essay, so don't be scared. That's awesome. Don't be scared of doing a little work for your scholarship application. Sometimes it pays off. Since that was your junior and senior year, when did you apply for that? Uh, I believe near the end of uh, sometime in my sophomore year, and I had some other scholarships, but they're the kind that you automatically apply for like okay. when you fill your FAFSA out on time, which is another reason to get that in. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a great example, though, of um, the importance of still applying for scholarships, even when you're in college. Yeah. Don't just don't just stop. Don't mm-hmm. just say, well, I guess I'll just take loans for the next three years because I did save quite a bit. Yeah. And if I'm thinking about it, most of the scholarships I won, I applied for in college. Yeah. And a lot of them don't. A lot of scholarships are specifically for juniors or seniors. Yep. Oh, so you can't. Maybe you're not in your field of study. I know certain things like the College of Design, there's like a pre-College of Design thing, and then Mm -hmm. you get accepted into your actual major by proving yourself in the first couple of years. So maybe you weren't in the major that has scholarships available yet. Yeah, exactly. So you can't just stop looking. So you had that, the full tuition one, or was it half tuition? Half tuition, I guess. That's right. Okay. And then did you get any, did you get any in high school? Um, I did get a, a couple scholarships that I took with me to community college. Okay, sweet. So that's part of why I came out of that debt free. So I got, I got one that was full tuition and that was the one that actually superseded that automatic scholarship. I was going to take chemistry, uh, over the summer to get, 
So that was really fortunate. And that was the reason I was able to go to college and live in a dorm uh, and only take loans for the dorms. And that was the only scholarship that I was awarded while I was still in high school. And I applied for dozens and dozens and dozens. Um, I remember spending just hours during my study halls in high school, going through FastWeb, applying for anything and everything that I could find. Were and these national scholarships? Yeah, most you, of them were you national. You applied for dozens and dozens. So. Tons. Yeah, it was because, I mean, FastWeb is just this huge scholarship search database, and anybody can get onto it, which the problem is, like, the competition is ridiculous because literally people from all around the world or at least all around the country are applying for the same things you are. And uh, I didn't win a single scholarship through any of that, but I did win the one from um, Iowa State. And you know what's funny? I didn't even win the one from my high school. Now, I think they may have taken the other scholarships you were already uh, you already had locked down into account, and they may have said, oh, look, Thomas already got enough. We're not going to give him the high school one. Uh, that would make sense. That could happen. If that was part of it. But bottom line... I only got one of my scholarships during high school. When I was in college, I got, I'm trying to think here. I won, I think I won five different scholarships during college. Um, one of my scholarships came from the company I eventually interned at and I won it before I did the internship, but I had gone to this big professional networking event for freshmen at that company. Um, I had made sure to build relationships with as many people as I could when I was at that. And then I got a mentor from that who introduced me to some people around the company. So I was doing my best to put my put a good foot forward at the company and only later on learned about that scholarship and jumped so on it. You were just networking for, for a job opportunity. Yeah. And then you happened to also get a scholarship. And then you did get the internship later. Mm-hmm. So networking really pays off. It was awesome. Yeah. And I did the internship and I made I think I might have made like five grand over the summer. And then at the end of the summer, um, they were like, hey, we just decided to award every person in the the tech department intern group an extra $1,000 as like a scholarship. So I guess I kind of won two scholarships oh, so, for them. Yeah, definitely be, <laughs> be networking. Apparently that pays off. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, a couple of the scholarships came from what Iowa State calls the General College of Business Application. And what this is, is every semester, no, every year, sorry, every year, on the College of Business's website, they just have this form you can fill out. It is not for one specific scholarship. It just puts you in the running for all the scholarships that all the businesses and rich people who are really nice and all other organizations have said, we want to give money to business students at Iowa State. So there's all these scholarships that are kind of available and you don't have to individually apply for them. You just fill out this one general application and then you're in the running. Um, and I won, I think it was the same scholarship two different years. It might've been like fresh, no sophomore and junior year, I think. And then the last scholarship I also won twice was the entrepreneurship scholarship. And this was like a specific application one. And I had to write a big long essay and I had to provide documentation for the projects I'd worked on. The first time I won it was before college info geek was really a thing. Like it was just, it was online at the time, but it was just like five posts. So that scholarship, I applied using my web development experience, running my freelance web company. And I think that might've been it. Maybe working with some, some local entrepreneurs through the entrepreneurship department as well. 
And I won from that. And then the second year I applied was my senior year. Uh, and that year I was able to say, oh, look at all these cool things that happened because of College of Geek. And then I went for that as well. So I guess, yeah, basic tip here is look high and low, look for general scholarship applications that maybe your college or your department offers, and also look for anything that you might be a fit for. Like I was a business student, but entrepreneurship entrepreneurship is a, uh, it's a pretty close area and I had some experience there. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, given given all the scholarships that we got and the fact that you applied for dozens and dozens, you said, from the fast web oh, yeah. thing in high school. So it sounds like we did we both did a, a lot better when we were applying for scholarships with a, like a smaller pool of applicants. Oh, definitely. Most of mine were either just for this university or just for the state. Mm-hmm. So local is 10 times better. Yeah, so you, you're I, not competing with like people from Hawaii and everywhere else in the world. It's so much easier if you focus most of your efforts on the local stuff, I'd say. Yeah. And I don't want to say this to dis like discourage anybody from using things like fast web or any of the other scholarship search engines to look for more scholarships. Somebody's going to win those awards and it could be you. It could be you, but the competition is ridiculous. And I, I invested a lot of hours into those applications. I spent tons of study halls and I remember um, somebody I know used to do a personal finance presentation. And one of his little examples is like, hey, if you spend 10 hours applying for scholarships and you win one for $1,000, well, you've just made $100 an hour. And I was like, man, that sounds pretty good. Except for when you really break it down, I spent 100 hours applying for scholarships and won none. <laughs> so that's wow. a how, big How bet. much did that pay? I uh, I. Carry, I can't do, I can't the, do the math there. Uh, you got to do the transitive property, but I think it's zero. So. Oh, so if you're going to apply for national ones, then probably be maybe clever, more thoughtful about which ones yeah. you want to invest your time in. So, if, And maybe it's just an 80-20 rule thing, right? Yeah. Like try to spend the majority of your time uh, looking high and low for any sort of local scholarships. Local businesses may offer them. Um, like we said, there's automatic scholarships, so definitely keep an eye out for those scholarship pages on your college website, your high school, the university you're going to go to. Those are the places with the scholarships you are most likely to win. And then once you've kind of dredged through all those, then you can invest some time into things like fast web. Though I, I will say you have to pay attention to deadlines. Like I, I would maybe spend half an hour to an hour a week, at least checking through the scholarship search databases to see what are the ones I think I'm likely to be able to win or that I at least have a shot at, and when do they do? Oh, you know, that that actually reminds me. I'm fairly certain. So Iowa State had its own little scholarship uh, database kind of thing you could search for or oh, search yeah. through. Yeah, it's on and, the financial page. And it had, it had a thing where it was, here are some scholarships with upcoming deadlines. And I would mm. look at that all the time. Yeah, FastWeb has that too. Yeah, so look at, do those first. Don't. Don't mess around. If you can see which ones are soonest coming up, that's a very good pool to start from. Yeah. And while I did say that merit is the main, uh, the kind of the main thing that people look at with scholarships, there are a lot of scholarships out there for special groups. So if you're a minority, if you're, and this one's really weird, if your last name is Van Valkenburg. Um, is that th- is that one? Yeah, there was some weird like some scholarship. some rich dude who wants to help his 
possibly kin? I guess. there. Oh, what was it? It wasn't FastWeb, but there was some scholarship search engine website where I had to create a profile in high school and you had to go through and check if you were affiliated with any of these things. And it was like, are you, you know, what, what, uh, what race do you identify as? And then it was like, do you have any professional memberships? Are you in like, um, what is it? The lions club or something like that? Uh, I don't know. There's like the Royal order of the moose and you, you wear the flannel shirts and you stand up and you, yeah, I don't know all those lodge organizations. Um, you say if you're any of those, you say if you're in like uh, Rotary or something like that. And then one of them was last name Van Balkenberg. And I was like, that is the most ridiculously That's specific very, thing very specific. I've seen for this huge. Is it a good scholarship? Did national, you check? It, it didn't list scholarships. It was it was like you had to create a profile. And then you just had to list all these things. Okay, I'm, I'm just wondering. And from maybe there, really it would match you. I didn't check last name Van Valkenburg. I want to find out. My last name if, is. If you have that last name and maybe you got that scholarship, <laughs> could you let me know in the Reddit? I want to know. Is that a good one? Well, the reason I still remember it is because I cool. had a good friend in high school whose last name was Van Valkenburg. Really? Yeah. I told him about it. So did they, I don't, I don't did know they if go he went. And, I don't know if he went and signed up or anything. No, but that feels like destiny. Like you have to sign up for it. Like the game? If that's your. if No, not like the game. <laughs> no, like. Real destiny. Real destiny. If your last name is that, and it's like calling for you. Well, I got to say, if I would have been him, and I was on that website, and I would have just discovered that on my own, I would have been like, jackpot. <laughs> yeah, nice. I knew that one would pay off. But there was no last name, Frank, unfortunately. Ooh, could you legally change your name and then qualify yourself? I think, I think if you get caught, like, well, don't get caught. you're at least going to get don't a get strong frown from someone. A very strong frown. But I mean, that's... Who's that going to stop? I don't know. <laughs> it might stop me, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'll go through a few of those scholarship search engines. These are not all of them, but fast web is the big one. That's the one my, uh, my high school guidance counselor told me about. There's also scholarships.com and there is one called big future, which is by the college board. So those are kind of the big three that I know about. There's also sites like Capex and Zinch, which, they're not necessarily huge scholarship search engines. I don't remember having as many options on those, but I did uh, create profiles on each one, and then I was in the running for a smaller number of scholarships. Never won them, so didn't really do me any good, but just because it didn't work for me doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I'm just, I'm just trying to establish, like, this is the probability versus local scholarship options here. Um... Now, you should never pay to apply for a scholarship. And if you find a different scholarship search engine besides the ones I just told you about, don't ever pay for those either. You shouldn't have to pay for these things. And the other thing to be aware of is that other sites, if they're like scholarship search engines, they might sell your personal information to advertisers. There's actually a huge industry um, that basically what they do is they collect your data somehow they sell it to advertisers. They sell it to for-profit universities. Um, in fact, having been in the online space for almost six years at this point, I'm kind of familiar with the way that a lot of people make money by uh, blogging for students. Because um, the way I do it is I kind of have a multifaceted approach, but I don't, I don't make money if a student goes to college. And I don't have any advertisements either, but I've, I noticed a lot of these websites and they'll have like weird domain names, like best online accredited colleges dot biz or something like that. Sounds trustworthy. It's all, yeah. It's all these kind of things. And, um, 
they'll always have like this college search engine tool next to whatever their blog post is. And I'm sure they're all using like, they're probably all using one company to do this, but you can search for colleges. They'll give you some data on them and then you can apply through their tool. But I think uh, a lot of these ones, when you use it and you apply, you're both applying to the college, but you're also submitting all that personal information to their database and then they go sell it to all sorts of other probably shadier for-profit colleges who will then try to woo you and take all your money. So basically be aware, <laughs> be aware who's taking your data and be aware that you don't pay for any scholarships. Um, you can hire a scholarship coach to help you tailor your application and make you more competitive. This is actually what Shanice Miller does. And she was the guest in my episode on how to win scholarships. And that's episode 34, I think. So uh, you don't have to do that. You can actually do a lot of things yourself. You can read some of the articles on CIG and some articles anywhere else and take what you can glean from that episode and hopefully create a great profile for yourself. But just do be aware there are uh, coaches out there uh, where, if you're so inclined. Where would you find this? Do you go to Twitter and see whose bio says scholarship coach? How do you... The, where, where does I, that okay, exist? I found Shanice through Listen Money Matters. Uh, before I co-hosted it, she was one of the early episodes, actually, back when Matt and Andrew were the hosts. I have no idea how they found her, so I couldn't tell you. I mean, <laughs> I bet you that if you look up scholarship coach, you can find people. Interesting. Oh, that reminds yeah, I'd me. I'd never heard of that. There is a book called Confessions of a Scholarship Winner, and it's by Christina Davis. I think her name is. She is not a scholarship coach, as far as I know. But she's just a girl who won a ton of scholarships, way more than I did. I think she she won. I'm not even being hyper, uh, hyperbolic about this. She won over 500 grand worth of scholarships. Did she need? Did she use it all? Like I on school? Think did she, did she like go to some Ivy League? And I don't think she ended up using all of it. But that was how much she had won and had the uh, option of using. I'm not sure if she ended up using all of it. But yeah, that she crazy. won a crazy amount of scholarships. That's several of my entire education. Several. Yeah. That's more money than I've made in my life by a good long shot. <laughs> uh, and that book is actually a pretty good resource too. So I'll have that linked up in the show notes because books are good. Um, yeah, and that's that's pretty much what I got about scholarships. So let's talk a little bit about grants. There's not a whole lot to say here other than that. Grants are more based on merit or more based on need, not merit, though the line is really kind of blurred between a scholarship and a grant because there are scholarships that require you to have certain needs or to be in a certain like underrepresented group. Um, so it's really just kind of semantics. But the main thing is that the Pell Grant is the one that you're considered for when you fill out the FAFSA. And then other grants may be things that you just need to apply for. So you can also search for grants or ask the financial aid counselor at your college or your guidance counselor at high school what your options are. Um, and did you get any other grants besides the Pell one? I believe I may have gotten a few, like automatic ones. Through... So, oh, so they're all automatic? Were they from the FAFSA or were they from just your school? Actually, I feel like they're... Maybe it was considered a scholarship, but I feel like if you were doing well enough, the College of Business in your in your higher years would pay the tuition difference between an upperclassman and like a freshman in business. If you if you had like certain grades or something, because the tuition got hiked up a little bit once you 
made it into your official major classes. Oh, yes. And they I remember would that. they would cancel that out. I remember that if yep. you were doing well. I I don't remember. I feel like it might have been a grant. Yeah, I do remember seeing a tuition difference grant on my. Yeah, uh, like they just cancel it out. I they say we're not going to charge been, you more. Whatever. That might have been a temporary thing. I think it might have been for like the students who were still in school when they upped the tuition. Oh. To be like, oh, well, you didn't agree to pay this, so if your grades are good enough, then we'll give you a grant to make it up. That might have been what happened. That may have been. But yeah, you yeah, actually just dropped my memory. I remember seeing that on my financial aid report. I was like, but what's yeah, that the, for? The only grants that I got that weren't Pell were automatic, so I didn't have to think about them very much. I also somehow got like a zillion printing credits, and I feel like that was somehow related. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. But you can't pay for classes with printing credits. So... That's scholarships and grants. The uh, next thing is loans. And I mean, this is something that Everybody a lot of students loves are loans. Take. I don't love loans. Well, I guess I like loans when they, I don't know. I feel like loans get too much undeserved hate because. The, Only if you take them out without realizing what you're yeah. doing. I mean, we, we always throw out like the student debt in America is over one point whatever trillion dollars. And that is a huge problem. You know, I don't want to trivialize that, but I also don't want to paint loans and debt as evil as a oh, concept you know that's a that's a good point i'd like to point out right now i have no regrets and i'm very happy that i took out my student loans and i'm in a much better place than i would have been had i not gone to more college yeah it it works out if you if you're making a a good decision if you think about the financial implications loans are not blanket statement evil mm-hmm. i mean a loan is just a way for value to be taken from somewhere where it's being underutilized and moved over to a place where it could be utilized better uh, to someone who doesn't yet have that capital. That's that's the entire concept of debt. I don't have what I need right now. You have an excess of what you need. Give me some of it. I'll pay you back with interest later. Perfectly fine system. Uh, if you read some anthropology, like all of human society is really built on debt and mutual uh, kind of indebtedness to each other. So... I don't think you need to think that loans are evil. And I, I remember when I was younger, uh, I was kind of like this debt-free fanatic. Like I was like, you know, debt-free or die. Uh, I'm going to pay off my loans. <laughs> debt-free or die. That is. <laughs> I don't think I was. Okay, that I wasn't is that very bad. intense. That I wasn't is, that bad, but it's incredibly intense. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new college info geek slogan: <laughs> debt-free or die. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on a shirt. If you're not debt-free. <laughs> yeah, no, that's. That's not our slogan. I'm, I'm going to veto that right away. <laughs> <laughs> but I was definitely like the, I'm, I want to feel free. I want to be able to do what I want. I'm going to pay off my student loans before I graduate. And I'm never going to have debt ever again in my life. Um, and I'm, I paid off my student loans before I graduated. That was amazing. But today I have a car loan now. The, the difference with the car loan is I make enough now that the car loan does not represent a significantly difficult payment to make every month. It's on auto pay. The money comes out of my account and I barely notice it. So it's I'm not hitting that now. 11% or no, yeah, wherever that causes the mental stress. It's definitely not hitting the 11%. It's not even close to that. Um, That's good. I don't, I don't really know what the figure is right now, but I negotiated the rate down at the dealership and, uh, we did an episode on, on LMM about this, about my whole car buying process, oh, yeah. which was really controversial. And we definitely got some of the debt-free fanatics coming out of the woodwork. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I went in there and I was like, 
I don't want to pay any more than 2.5%. So if you can give me that, then I will, I'll finance with you guys. Otherwise I'll find a bank. And they were like, yeah, your credit score is good enough. We'll take, we'll do a 2.5% loan. So, I mean, I still pay there's, I'm paying interest, but, uh, basically I knew my car was going to, my old car was going to die at some point. And then your car did die. And I was yep. like, okay, it is logical for me to sell you my car. It will probably, you'll probably get a good two or three years out of it. And, uh, and I basically sold it to you for next to nothing. And I took the loan because I didn't have enough money to pay for a new car outright yet or at the time. But I was like, I have enough money and I have enough money coming in on a regular basis that the loan is not going to represent any sort of a difficult payment. So take the logical approach. We both have cars now. We're both able to go places. I'm okay with the debt. That being said, a lot of students graduate with more debt than they need. And I think for every student that is a debt-free fanatic that thinks loans are evil, there's like a hundred that just do not think about loans at all. They, they just they just click, does this make me go to college? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I say yes. And this like is Like we were a talking problem. about the NYU story yeah. for in the last episode. Yeah, exactly. You know, the kid's like, I really want to go to New York. I really want to be in the best city in the world. And I'll pay whatever it takes. Just and society, takes. guidance counselors in some uh, some situations, parents, they all perpetuate the problem. Because at least in this country, what I have what I have experienced is society tells you, go for the highest potential return you're going to get. You know, go for the gold. Yeah, go, go to the best possible home. university. And you know what? You're going to be rich. You're going to be able to easily make those payments when you graduate. Don't even worry about it. And it just baffles my mind. You know, it just baffles me how people are willing to go to college. They're willing to put in all this work over four years or even more like super hard mental work, but they're not willing to take like two hours to sit down and actually take the loan amount and go like even like just use an interest calculator on bankrate.com and be like, what's my payment going to yeah, be? That's a, you know, that's and a really good point. What's the average cost of living going to be, you know? So I've got a, um, an article on college info geek. I wrote a little while ago. It's called the true cost of student loans. And please go read it because it breaks down, um, example, final loan balances upon graduation. And it breaks those down into monthly payments with interest. It compares that to average starting salaries for different majors. It uh, takes into account like cost of living indexes for potential cities you might move to. And it basically just gets your brain in the mindset of thinking like, where am I likely to be? How much am I going to be likely to make? And how is that going to compare to what my payment is? Like, Just please have that in mind before you accept any debt whatsoever. Because then you are you know what you're getting into. So many people just look at the number and they go, that's a big number. And it's kind of like, have you, have you ever read those studies about how like, um, if you ask somebody, how much money would you be willing to donate to save one pelican from drowning in an oil spill? And people are like, I'd donate 70 bucks for that. And then they, they ask the same question, except they're like, all right, you know, to a different person, how much money would you be willing to donate to save 10 birds, to save 100 birds, to save 10,000 birds? And the amount they'd be willing to Is donate like the same? doesn't scale up. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like a, it's a big, very I'd, little I'd more. I'd also pay 70 to save that species. Exactly. Yeah. I forgot what the, the technical term for this is. It's like, um, uh, scope and sensitivity. That's what it is. 
Yeah, scope and sensitivity. And and we all have terrible scope and sensitivity. Uh, yeah, human, sensitivity human with, brains are not particularly natively good at yeah. numbers in that scale. Our, in fact, there's like much this, bigger uh, than what we encounter. There's this really cool Vsauce video that you should definitely go check this out. It's so interesting. Um, it shows how if you take somebody who never learned the normal one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten counting system that we use and you ask them like you have kind of like a group of items and you say like maybe there's there's uh, nine items there and you say point out like the halfway point um, or maybe it's like a number line. Yeah, it's a number line. So point out the halfway point between like one and nine and they're going to point out three instead of five because the human brain is naturally proportional. Uh, it looks at things in proportional sizes. It doesn't look at individual numbers so much. And it kind of makes sense when you think like, you know, one lion attacking you and two lions attacking you is a pretty big difference, right? Maybe yeah, the you second can run away from the lion. Problem. Yeah, maybe you can run away from one lion, but two are going to flank you and you're dead. But 96 lions versus 97 lions. I didn't that's even notice just 97. A lot of didn't lions. even see him come in. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. It's, um, if there are less than, I believe, five items in a group, then you don't even have to count. You know just by looking how many are there. Or uh, if there's like, you know, a group of four and a group of five, without counting, you can be able to tell the difference. Um, I think the video said like there's if there's a greater than 15% difference in the numbers of things in one group versus the numbers of things in another group, without even counting just at a glance, you can tell you can this just, group is bigger than you the, just than perceive this group. it. Yeah. That's but cool. anything less than that, then you got to count. And, you know, the more abstract things get, the more numbery things get the less likely we are to really truly appreciate them and understand how they'll truly affect our lives. Yeah, like picture a million grains of sand and now picture a billion. To me, that's it was the same. The there was no difference. Beach and a bigger beach. I don't know. <laughs> they are, I, that's a lot. That's too many numbers. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I, can, I can conceptually, I know in my head that a billion grains of sand is much, much, much more than a million. But if I try to picture, you know, a beach with a million and then I try to picture a beach with a billion, I would imagine that my brain's like, scale is actually far less than it should be. Because yeah, I have no idea what that the scale actually looks like. A billion is like. a million millions. And your loans are going to be in these numbers, tens yeah. of thousands, and they're going to get to points that you like stop thinking about as clearly if you don't make a point to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get to the point where it's like, 40k in debt versus versus 80k that's that's just a lot and a lot but i'm sure i'll be able to handle it because everyone else isn't able to handle that right you know so really break it down just be like how much money i'm gonna ha am i gonna have at the end of the month after the payment comes out it's all i want you to do so i'll get off my my stump on that bit right now we can get some uh get through some details here so with government loans which i'm really not too hard too much against um I guess my my baseline tip is try to finance your education through any avenue that avoids debt first. So go for as many scholarships as you can, as many grants as you can. Try to cut the cost and um, be willing to fight against that sunk cost fallacy and go to a more affordable school if you need to. That being said, most people I know who have government debt it's not too unmanageable. And as we'll talk about in a minute here, there are income-based repayment plans that will keep your payment capped at 10% uh, of your discretionary income in some cases. So it's conveniently right below yeah. that stress box. Yeah, exactly. So um, 
you've got your Stafford loans. Now, the subsidized loans, like I said, the federal government pays your interest that accrues while you're enrolled. So it's not like interest just doesn't accrue, but that's why it's called subsidized, not interest-free. The federal government's basically paying off that interest on the contingency that, or on the, is that a contingency? Maybe. I don't know words today. I don't know. We're <laughs> talking about numbers. We don't on need the words. condition, yeah, that's right. We're we're just numbers guys. More of an idea guy, actually. Yeah. So I'll let you do the work of uh, <laughs> <laughs> knowing words on the condition that you are enrolled full time, um, and uh, your your interest is basically not accruing for you. Now these are based on your expected family contribution and your financial need. So how many subsidized loans you're available or you're eligible for will depend on that. And then you've also got unsubsidized loan eligibility, which is not actually based on your financial need. They will basically be always available to you. There's a bunch of crazy criteria, like your year in school. Like you can't just go to school forever and continually get Stafford oh, yeah. there's, loans. There's like a max. Yeah. There's a max limit. There's a max year, uh, number of years in school. You can be taking these loans out, but it's not based on need, which is nice. But like any normal loan, your interest does accrue while you're in school. And uh, it's your responsibility to know what that interest rate is and what that actually amounts to once you pay it off. So also keep in mind, subsidized loans will start accruing if you drop out or anything like that. There's also the Perkins loan. So the Perkins loan is based on a financial need. So it's not like Stafford where it's basically available to all. You do need to need it. Uh, It is made through the school and you also repay it to the school. So I know in my experience, I only had Stafford loans and those I paid directly back to Sally Mae on behalf of the government. But if you had a Perkins loan, you would be sending the check to your school instead. And these ones have a nine-month repayment grace period after graduation, which is pretty nice because that basically gives you a pretty big window of time to find a job and get yourself kind of on two feet before the payments come due. So that's a nice thing. You also have, so those are the two that you can take out uh, for the government. There's also the Parent PLUS loan, and the Parent PLUS loan is basically a loan that your parent can apply for and take out. And honestly, like, I don't recommend this. Uh, My opinion on this was greatly influenced by Zach Bissonette in the Debt for You book, but there's no hard limits on this. You can borrow up to the cost of the education, regardless of the university, and uh, that can lead parents to, once again, get into that sunk cost fallacy, get into that I really want to provide the best possible opportunity for my kid fallacy. Uh, I remember reading an article lately about this guy was was writing, he wrote this really big, long article about how so many um, people in America, I can't remember the percentage, couldn't come up with 400 bucks for an emergency if they needed to. And uh, a lot of his article was about kind of like some of the systematic problems, but he was he was in that, group of people where he said, I couldn't come up with 400 bucks right now. You know, I'm older, I'm a teacher of some sort. And, you know, my wife and I, we took out a second mortgage on our house to pay for my daughter to go to some, it was like Yale or something. And I'm like, I get that you want to provide opportunities to your kid. Like, I'm not going to, I don't want to like harp on people too much for that because it's, it's such a noble thing to want, but you're taking out a second mortgage in your house. Like it's so easy to get into a state of mind that leaves you high and dry at the end of the day. So I'm just not a big fan of the parent plus. I'm much, I'm, I'm much more into the, the idea of just trying to reduce the cost of your education because it really is based on your merits for the most part. 
Um, also, the Parent Plus generally does not have access to income contingent repayment plans like Stafford loans do unless you consolidate those loans later. But just keep that in mind. You can borrow a lot. It can get you in trouble. And it's debt you're taking out in your name. Um, a, lot of, a lot of parents will take these out because they don't want to co-sign for a private loan. Um, most private loans are actually, they need to have, be co-signed these days. So parents will go for the Parent Plus. But in either case, you're putting your name on the line for that debt. So keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, maybe look at some cheaper college options if you absolutely have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like, I, I just, I can't emphasize enough how much I found my state, in-state education valuable. I know Iowa State is a, is a pretty good school as far as state universities go, but it's certainly not the best. It's, it doesn't chop, uh, it doesn't top the college rankings, which I think are BS anyway, but I had so many opportunities. There were so many connections to companies. I had just so many areas to go and work and grow and meet people. And most of that was just on me. And because of the internet, I had almost infinite more opportunities, which arguably panned out better than the <laughs> things that happened at the university, you know, in the buildings. So just really consider your options. Um, so let's talk about repaying those government loans. Uh, I repaid mine through Sally Mae, just straight direct deposit to the government every month. And then I would log in and, de- and uh, deposit even more so I could get them off faster. Is that what you're doing too? Uh, yeah, when I can. Is yours a direct deposit? It is. Or withdrawal? Let's see. Yes. Gotta get my accounting I, terms I log correct. in, I log in, and I uh, make a new payment, and then they withdraw the money from my bank account. Wait, you log in and you... Yeah, it's not automated. It. Uh, oh, okay. But I just log into like this Nelnet system. Okay. And then a different one for the other loan. But you just log in every month. They withdraw the money from your bank. Cool. Eh. It's not too complicated, but that's because it's uh, only coming through a couple places, so I don't have to think about, like, mm-hmm. if you have, like, loans coming from 10 different places, it's going to be a little more complicated. Yeah. So that that's generally how you'll repay them. The real questions people have about repaying is, how do I get out of repaying them? Or how do I pay less? Or, like, the payment's too hard. How do I pay less per month? So let's get into that a little bit. Um, first up, if you die... They're discharged. That's nice. So that's nice, I guess. Well, thanks. I guess thanks, your, government. your parents will be that's able awesome. to afford like something else. <laughs> but <laughs> I say that because it's it's generally quite hard to discharge a student loan. It's one of the harder forms of, of debt to get out of. And in most cases, you cannot even bankrupt it. And I remember there was uh, an episode of some financial podcast a while ago. It was a couple of years ago now where the guest was like, I heard about this doctor who paid off all of his student loans with credit cards and then he went and bankrupted the credit cards because credit card debt is bankruptable. <laughs> and I was like, that sounds like either complete BS or it was something that worked once and then they and just then they assigned some it. lawyer somewhere to go hole. change the code. Either way, this is another one of those rabbit holes I went down a couple years ago where I was like, I'm going to go literally read the bankruptcy code to see if this is a thing you can do. So I did. Um, luckily I think, I think it was posted on nolo.com, which is like, I think it stands for no lawyer. Um, it's quite a nice website. <laughs> it makes the law a little bit easier to understand, huh. but they had like the whole bankruptcy code on there. 
Uh, and then I think I actually went and dug into the real text just to verify this. Basically, there are rules for if if debt was taken out to pay for other kinds of debt, then like if the original debt was non-dischargeable, it it's like by the transitive property, it kind of shoves that non or that non-dischargeable property over to the new debt. So if you try to pay off student loans with your credit card, then the debt on your credit card now becomes non-dischargeable. And that's that's if the credit card company doesn't try to sue you for fraud in the first place. Uh, oh, yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's not going to actually help your debt, it turns out. Yeah, so if you try to sneakily get rid of your... Your uh, your credit, your student loans. Please don't like sue me. It was a joke. I, I swear card. it was a joke. Please don't sue me. At worst, you're gonna end up in jail or or sued <laughs> for fraud. At best, the judge is gonna be like, "Yeah, someone already tried this, and we patched that." So nice try, kid. <laughs> it's not gonna work. Um, you can get government debt forgiven, though. There are some ways to do that. Generally, these are incentive programs for people working in areas that the government wants more people working in, such as if you teach in a low-income school district for five years, you can get some or all of your debt forgiven. Um, there are certain public service jobs, like I believe like a public service lawyer in some areas, you can get the rest of your loan uh, payments forgiven after 120 payments, which is like, what is that, 10 years? Yeah, 10 years of service basically. So if you have a lot of debt, then that is one option you can get into. And then you can also get your loans fully or partially uh, either forgiven or deferred through the Peace Corps. So, and that's, I think that's a reason why some people do go into the Peace Corps after high, uh, college. Um, and you can just check their website for more info on that. I don't know a ton about it, but it's a thing you can do. And then uh, you can also defer. This is something you have to apply for and you can't do it forever. But in the case where it's like, hey, I am, I just can't find the job right now. Um, deferring is an option, basically just, puts off your payments for a few months. Uh, the other option, the big one here is income-based repayment plans. So normally you'd be on the standard repayment plan if you had Stafford loans or Perkins loans and uh, you'd just pay whatever the payment would be for the loan period and the uh, interest rate and your principal balance. But they have four other types of payment plans. There's the revised pay-as-you-earn. There's pay-as-you-earn, which is the original version of that. There's the income-based repayment plan and also the income-contingent repayment plan. Uh, just to really quickly go through these, in each case, you're paying less per month, but you're generally going to pay more total since you're making more payments at the same interest rate, so the interest just keeps accruing for longer. Um, on the revised pay-as-you-earn, you pay about 10% of your discretionary income, and what that means is the difference between your income and 150% of the poverty guideline for your family size and where you live. Now that probably sounds like a mouthful of mush right now, but if this is like something you're interested in, you can figure that out and then you'll basically be able to say, oh, I'll have to pay this month, uh, this much. So in that case, I think that the period is like 20 years if your loans are all from your undergrad career and 25 if any of them were for graduate or professional study. The pay as you earned one is 10% of your discretionary income, but it can't be more than the standard 10 year payment plan amount for income-based repayment plan, it's the same as pay as you earn if you're a new borrower after July 1st, 2014. Otherwise, it's 15% of your discretionary income. And then for the income contingent plan, it's either 20% of your discretionary or whatever you'd pay on a fixed payment plan for 12 years adjusted to your income, whichever one is lower. 
Um, all of them are either 20 or 25 years, depending on certain different factors. So I've got a link in the show notes for eligibility and other details. But yeah, I think the the pay as you earn, the revised pay as you earn are going to be pretty good options if you really need to have a lower monthly payment. And that can probably get you below that 11% really stressful threshold. And yeah, it's you don't want to be at that point. It's It's tough. Which actually reminds me, I'm I'm kind of glad that I didn't pay for my dorm with my uh, part-time job money because it would have meant that I would have to eat ramen and stuff. That's, oh, yeah. It would have been way over 11%. Yeah. <laughs> for, <laughs> it would have been like all percent. Well, I guess it wouldn't be debt, but it would be like Yeah, but it would like 11%. Uh, more than 11% of your money is going towards uh, your Yeah, stuff. and this is why I don't hate government loans and I don't hate the idea of debt because... I went through college and I had free time to learn how to code and to write all these blog posts that at the time gave me no tangible return, but ended up forming the foundation of a really large project that became my career. There is potential value in leveraging debt. You just have to know what it's going to cost you online, what it's going to take to pay it back. If I would have been eating ramen and paying every dime that I made from my 20 hour per week job to just keep myself in the dorm, then who knows what would have happened, you know? Uh, and that's, that's kind of like the whole con the concept of leveraging in the first place. You just, you just have to do it and know what the risks are. And that's kind of what you did as well. Like you, you've told me I don't regret taking out debt, right? Yeah, no, it's, they did a good thing for me. The mm -hmm. debt I took changed the direct, the direction of my life in a good way. I don't regret it. I'm totally fine paying it off. But had I like gone to a more expensive school and taken out much more debt without thinking about it, I'm sure I wouldn't be quite as satisfied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. It's it's all about balance, really. Yeah, if you take out a loan amount, knowing what that really means, it can be a very good decision. And I think I remember um, back when we were in the last apartment, we wrote out on the whiteboard Oh yeah, exactly what your loan balance was and what you were making at your previous job. And I think we were able to figure out like you could pay off all of your loans in two and a half years Yeah, um, back when you were doing that job. So that is a big difference from I've got 100K in loans and I'm making, you know, even like 5K a year less than what you were making at the time. That would represent like, oh, I'm paying these things off for 20 years or something like that. And faced with the prospect of paying back loans for 20 years, like that's a significant chunk of your life. But if it's two years, then that's just, you know, putting in your dues. And it's it's very little time before you can start reaping the benefits. Um, and that's why I, again, emphasize doing the math and knowing what your payments are going to be because it can represent a very, very big difference in overall quality of life for a long, long time. Yeah, well, it makes sense when you said that so many people are, they'll put in four years of university work. They'll put in hours looking for scholarships, but it'll take you just a few hours to maybe try to estimate out what your loan payments are going to be later. And that yeah. might give you a better perspective on the rest of all of that. And I don't know what it comes down to, like what causes people to avoid this. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's that math is scary. I don't know. Or maybe it's, Maybe it's just that. I mean, so many maybe people, it's a blind optimism. Maybe you're just like, yeah. I'll, I'll totally have the money. It, maybe, maybe it's an infamiliarity with uh, how difficult that career field or getting jobs that pay enough might be. I don't know. That could definitely be what it is. It's like, uh, 
and Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street, calls you up on the phone. Yeah, I got this great investment for you, man. And that your reason for investing for it is a man on the phone told you to. <laughs> I don't know. It sounded <laughs> it's like good. Same thing. Yeah, nah, it sounded good at the time. So yeah, do the math. Um, so that that's the government loan options. The other loan option, obviously, is private, and these ones I'm not a fan of. The reason I'm not a fan of them is that the government offers you ample loans for almost all cases. Like if you're, yeah, the, the if max you haven't been in college high. for a zillion years, you know, the maximum amount you can borrow is quite high and you should honestly be able to finance a financially responsible college choice through a combination of government loans, part-time jobs, savings, and uh, scholarships if you can win them. So if you have to resort to private loans, it's starting to get into murky territory here. And maybe if you got to take, a, if you're like showing up a $500 difference or something, eh, like yeah, sh- maybe, maybe that's okay. But if you, if you're starting to need to get a lot of private loans, maybe you need to say, wait, why is it this expensive? Right. Why did I cross that threshold already? Mm-hmm. It's just like the Amazon thing, right? I'm up upselling myself on like a $200 rice cooker yeah, at this did, point. Did I need a $200 rice cooker? Okay, all these all these reviews oh. have touted all these benefits. I really do want that oh, extra heat it, setting just in yeah. case I happen to cook chickpeas. But, just in case. You know, I'm never going to do that because <laughs> I can just buy tahini at the store. So I don't even know where I was going with that tangent. But. I don't know, <laughs> but now I'm hungry. So good job. Yeah, I'm kind of hungry too. Uh, but you're probably hungry because you skipped lunch. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. That makes sense. Got to get in the Any, ball, dude. Anyway, yeah. yeah, private loans are... Watch so if out. you find yourself at the point where you're like, eh, I'm going to have to take out an extra 3K in private loans every semester to afford this dream school, then you really got to ask yourself, am I falling victim to the sunk cost fallacy? Am I, you know, just sucking up or just kind of biting up like hook, line, and sinker this uh, rosy rose-tinted glasses picture of how amazing this college will be and how crap everything else could be? That's the point at which you really need to start thinking hard about that because private loans, for one, often have a higher interest rate than the government loans. Not always, but a lot of times they do. They do not have any of the protections. They don't have the public service forgiveness. They don't have the income-based repayment plans. Um, Really, the only way to get your private student loans to cost you less per month is to consolidate, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But still, I just really don't recommend them. And I, I personally, I would do whatever I could to avoid them. Uh, and this is exactly the opinion of Zach Bissonnette and Debt for You. Also, like I said, 90% of private student loans need a cosigner. And this is usually going to be the parents. And if you're a parent, keep in mind that even if the debt is repaid on time, just having that co-signed loan will affect your credit score. It will affect your debt to income ratio. So, and I've got a... a a blog or a U.S. news article that I'll link to if you want more information on that. So they're an option. And if you have them, it's not the end of the world, but I'm just not a fan of them. Um, So one of the last things I want to talk about here, I guess we have a couple like small things to wrap up with, but the last thing, last big technical topic here is consolidation. So consolidation, if you don't know, is basically taking the loans you have and getting them paid off by a consolidation company who then hands you a loan for the same amount, but hopefully at a lower interest rate. Um, actually, it would need to be a lower interest rate. It would be really dumb to consolidate oh, yeah, yeah. to a higher interest rate. Yeah, uh, we're a consolidation firm, and we were wondering if you wanted to consolidate into a you know a reasonable 24% interest loan. <laughs> 
Don't yeah. think about it. Yeah. We're, don't think about it. That's actually the name of our company. It's don't think about it consolidations. Yeah. Oh, the guy behind the desk with the baseball bat? Don't look at him. And we also the, own the repo nice company guy. down the road. <laughs> you're about you're gonna meet Vinny, the owner of that one. <laughs> He's my brother. They're good yeah, people. They're, they're not good people. Don't talk to them. Don't look at them. <laughs> <laughs> don't think about what's in that paper bag. So a rule of thumb here is if you have loans above 5% interest, it is a smart idea to at least look into consolidation options. But you do need to be aware of the details and potential pitfalls of consolidation. So the good is that it simplifies multiple loans into one loan or at least fewer, but hopefully one. So that way you only have one monthly payment and hopefully it should have a lower interest rate or if it doesn't have a lower interest rate, it could have a longer repayment term, which could, um, that's the other way that would result in lower monthly payments. So if you really need lower monthly payments, those are both of your options, but a longer payment term is going to re- result in more interest paid total. Now the bad is that, like I said, longer interest payment or longer repayment term is more interest. But also if you consolidate government loans through private consolidation, then you're losing protections and access to your income-based repayment plans. So it's definitely not something to take lightly. There is, however, a government-sponsored consolidation option called direct consolidation. Most federal loans are eligible for this, and the interest rate is based on the weighted average of loans being consolidated. So it's probably not going to end up being a lower interest rate total, but it's going to be about the same, and you may be able to get a longer repayment plan and those uh, consolidation loans are eligible for the income-based things. So say you've got a parent plus loan. Um, you can't do income-based repayment, but you could consolidate that and potentially get it. Though, keep in mind, you can't can, you can't transfer a parent plus loan to a student's name through consolidation. You're still on the hook if you took it out as the parent, but you can pay less per month for it if you go with like pay as you earn or income contingent or something like that. So with private consolidation options. There is one um, run by people who I have talked to personally, and that is SoFi. Uh, You can find them at SoFi.com. I know with Listen Money Matters, we have like a referral link. So I guess I sort of have a kind of relationship to SoFi in that Andrew makes money if people use the referral link and I have never been paid for it. But uh, (laughs) with that disclosure out of the way, I really like SoFi because They have as low as 3.5% interest rates uh, if you do a fixed rate loan and their variable goes down to 2.14% if you have automatic withdrawal every month from your bank account. Oh, Um, so they'll reward you for Yeah, and I mean, that's that's a really low interest rate. Though I don't, I'm not usually a fan of variable interest rate loans unless you're going to pay them back really quickly. Like if you have like a 10-year variable, like who knows what it's going to be in seven years, but a fixed interest rate, like that's, that's pretty cool. Um, But the real reason that I like SoFi is, number one, they weigh your career experience uh, and your income to expenses ratio, basically how financial responsible you are more highly than like ultra crazy credentials of your education or something like that. A lot of a lot of or a lot of consolidation firms are like, we want only doctors and lawyers. And if you're an undergrad with a lot of debt, screw you, we don't care, you know they look at other factors. So their underwriting process is different and it's just more student friendly. Um, they do want people, I think when I talked to them, it was, it was quite a while ago, maybe over a year ago, they wanted people in higher paying career fields, though they did tell me that they had to start there simply because of the financial aspects of 
building a new company, but they wanted to expand into uh, offering more solutions to a wider range of people. So it's definitely something that's going to get bigger and bigger as it goes and hopefully more helpful. But the really cool part is if you lose your job, they will one, pause your payments temporarily. And two, they have people that try to help you find a new job. So like that is the reason I like them because they are actually invested in the success of their clients. They're not just trying to consolidate just to make money. They really care. And I think they actually expanded out of a group that was formed by alumni of one specific college to help other graduates of that specific college. So not saying they're a perfect company, but I do like what they do. Um, and there's certainly other options out there, but that's the one that I know of and have talked to the team behind. But yeah, just keep in mind with any consolidation option, the interest rates are based on whatever the company decides, market conditions, etc. So it's not necessarily going to be 3.5 and it's not necessarily going to be like that weighted average thing, like the uh, direct consolidation will get you. So we talked about bankrupting. I had that on the, on the outline, but I think we already covered that. The only other things were jobs and savings. Um, Martin, you had jobs through pretty much all of college. Uh, almost except for all maybe of it. one. Uh, in the beginning, I didn't have a job for several months first. At, at my the community college or here? Uh, or actually, in community college, I had a year, and then I got okay. a job. At an Iowa State, I had several months, got my bearings, and then got a job. And then I had a job almost the entirety of my education, minus a few pockets. Yeah. And then uh, that's just a nice way to have pocket money you know yeah um and if you want to do that monthly tuition payment you can help if your parents are helping you pay that as one way you could help or you could just do what i did and buy computers <laughs> um, but it is nice to have a job and it's definitely a way to pay for college if you need to and then uh the real big one is i think summer jobs are like i think I mean, it's like essential a lot more hours in the summer to do some sort of work in the summer i mean maybe if you're doing some sort of engineering program like an reu or something then maybe you won't be making money in the summer but uh i was pretty much always making money during my summers my first summer after college i worked as a student orientation assistant which paid a stipend um and i lived on campus for free and then my next summer i was doing my internship which paid pretty dang well and then the next summer after that um at that point cig was not full-time but it was getting close so i did freelance web dev and oh wait no I did work I also worked on campus during that summer so I had part-time jobs through almost all of college there was only one semester when I didn't and that was the final semester where CIG was like at that point there was making it was making an income and it would have been a loss of money for me to spend hours at a part-time <laughs> job so I didn't do that that would have been dumb it would have been pretty funny if I was just like no I'm gonna because of pride, I'm going to have a part-time job all eight semesters. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that would have been a, the best investment at that point. Yeah, it was actually kind of funny because during the first semester of senior year, I had this job doing web dev for a psychology department, but they like ran out of web dev for me to do and they didn't lay me off. They just were like, just, well, like, kept paying you. Yeah, because I think they were like in negotiations with some other department to potentially merge. And they were oh, like, yep. yeah, eventually when we merge, we're probably yeah, going to need that. to build a new website. But that could take months because this is a giant, huge institution. So 
Yeah, you can kind of just sit around and twiddle your thumbs. So for a while, I ran around the office and like built automation scripts for them and helped people with their computer problems and like helped a lady figure out how to make PDFs on her Mac. And then that ran dry. So it was just kind of like, oh, I'm coming in three days a week for 12 bucks an hour to sit on my laptop and do homework and work on articles. And eventually I just emailed my boss and I was like, if you need me, can you just tell me to come in? Otherwise, is it cool if I just don't come to work? And he was like, yep, that's cool. And then one day after I hadn't gone to work in like two months, I just emailed him like, I don't know if you guys actually still need me, but I think I'm going to stop working for you guys. <laughs> and they were like, that's totally cool. That is- <laughs> we're still waiting for the merger. It's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. It was like, it was like the most whimper of a quitting that has yeah. ever happened. <laughs> yeah, so basically you had, you had kind of functionally quit two months before Pretty much. you quit. Yeah. It was like. Every every job quitting experience I had before that had always been like I write up a, re- a letter of resignation, and wow I can't say words today resignation. Go into the office, talk to the manager, explain my reasons, and you know have a hard cutoff date. But nope, that one was just kind of like I guess I don't work here anymore. Yeah, cool. <laughs> but that job was really helpful. Um, I learned some crazy automation stuff from that, and I had a really nice little resume booster from the uh that the one particular automation thing i did saved the company a ton of money which i think oh nice may have been part of the reason they could keep me on the payroll because i pretty much paid for myself with that automation thing like it it saved about 800 hours of time awesome (laughs) so or it was 300 hours yeah it was 300 hours and it was like eight bucks an hour per student for uh doing that manually so it was like 2400 dollars that it saved them so that was more than they were going to pay me for the rest of the semester. Cool. Paid for myself. Um, but we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit more about the relative merits and, and non merits detriments, if you will, of having a job in college, uh, in the next episode. Cause I think that's actually a good topic to cover under the whole umbrella of transitioning to college and whether or not you should fill your time with a job. Um, and we both got some thoughts on that. Yeah, but I definitely think your summers are prime time to be making money and making them in the uh, the way that's going to best benefit your major and career prospects as well. There's actually a part-time jobs episode on the podcast. I forget the number, but CIGpodcast.com will have all of them. And I'll also link to it in the show notes as well. We kind of have like a little part-time job desirability index. So check that out. And then the last part is saving money. Um, really the action item here is to start saving now, as you listen to this, there's no proper time to start except for now. So, uh, if you're a parent, you can actually start what's called a 529 savings account. Now this is basically like an IRA for college, which means the funds you put into it are tax advantaged. Basically you're, uh, saving on taxes now and you can take them out only for educational expenses, though you can name the beneficiary. So, the one thing I remember uh, when we were when I was learning about these in depth is I thought, well, what if I'm a parent and I put money into my 529 for junior and then junior ends up being a delinquent, and never goes to college. Like, is that money locked in there forever? Well, no, you could you could rename the beneficiary to uh, your second kid or to somebody else's kid or something like that. Um, but if you were to take it back out for yourself, you'd have to pay the same kind of penalty that you'd have to pay for an IRA. So we have an LMM episode on that. Um, it is a whole episode on college savings accounts. So if you want some more detail on that, then go have a listen to that episode. And whew, 
that's all of our outline. Yep. We did it. We did it. <laughs> you know what's funny? Um, the last episode we estimated would take two hours and it only took an hour. And because it only took an hour, I was like, hey, this one will only take an hour. What do we got? And then it's an hour and I think 40 minutes because we had like about 10 minutes of just random banter before I started recording well, you know, for reals. Well, I hope it was a good, a I good hour and 40 good. minutes. Yeah. I know this episode was like a ridiculous info dump. Yeah, it's very information based. So, so for like the one random cow that somehow started the podcast by like bumping its nose against an iPhone that got left on the ground, that cow is probably still listening. It doesn't know what I'm saying, but nobody else is still listening. <laughs> yeah. But for you, Mr. Cow, thank you for listening to the whole episode. <laughs> and <laughs> seriously, if, if you are still listening, thanks for getting through the whole episode. Hopefully you found it helpful. Uh, the show notes have links to lots of other resources where you can learn more. And I would also recommend just building a relationship with the financial aid counselor at your school of choice. They're going to be able to answer a lot of extra questions and uh, help you kind of hash out all the details. So show notes are over at CIGpodcast.com. Find the episode 110 link on the page and you'll get all those extra resources. There's also a link to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you really want to support the show, that's a great way to do it. The more ratings and the more reviews and the more subscriptions through iTunes uh, that come in, the more the show will climb the charts and rankings and even more students will be able to find it naturally that way. So definitely makes me happy. And uh, I appreciate you a lot. Either way, I appreciate you for listening, but mega appreciation if you write a review. So that's all we got. Next week, we're talking about the... Uh, the whole process of becoming college ready. So we're going to talk about adulthood. We're going to talk about uh, what emotional readiness. Yeah. Like that's just the, the mental, the emotional, the responsibility based this whole transition because college yeah. is, is in part becoming an adult for most people. And it's a, just a huge shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm pretty excited to do that one. Now that I one, that one I feel will be more universally just applicable to literally anyone who listens to it will probably pull something from it. I think so. I think we probably pulled stuff from making the outline for it. Yeah. But yeah, it was something I thought about a lot uh, during my last year of high school. Like, how am I going to transition? Is this a scary thing? So keep your eyes peeled for that episode coming out next Monday as I record this. And uh, until then, stay cute.